it's finally happened. You pushed me to the brink, now I can't go on. Soon, the cold arms of Lincoln Avenue and the Grafton Pub shall embrace my numb uh, folk music smeared body, leaving behind only a memory and this valedictory message to you. Robbie Folks, Grammy-nominated musician, songwriter, and performer. This special extra episode features excerpts from a conversation between Robbie and his longtime friend and fellow performer, Steve Dawson. Both active in the Chicago music community for over 30 years, Folks taught bluegrass guitar at the Old Town School from 1984 to 96, and Dawson has been teaching guitar and songwriting at the school since 2006. I'm Robbie Falks. I'm totally demented, <laughs> and, and uh, I'm a friend of Steve Dawson's, whom I'm talking to today. Yeah, I've been a fan and friend of Robbie Falks since 1988. I should have said fan. I was a fan as well. Oh, stop. Uh, not anymore, but I was. <laughs> I moved to Chicago in 1987, and uh, my roommate at the time was Nicholas Barron. He was getting a record produced by Gus Friedlander. Oh, get out of here. And Gus, like, asked me, you know, like, so what do you do? I'm like, I'm a singer, songwriter guy. And he's like, okay, you've got to hear Robbie Folks. He's the best songwriter in Chicago. So Gus took me to see you at Holstein's. At Holstein's? Oh, my god. Probably in, like, November of 1988. And you played by yourself. And it was great. And, uh, And I first heard of your band. I don't know what the year would have been. If it was 89... Or maybe 90, and at uh, it was definitely at, uh, at uh, not Orphans, but the new Orphans, uh, Beat Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I saw you guys, I'm pretty sure, for the first time over there. Would that, would that yeah. period have been correct? Yeah, sure. We played there a lot. Yeah. yeah. And similarly, uh, astonished and jaw-dropped and loved it. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's cool. Chicken we... tortilla soup they had. <laughs> <laughs> like bar food. We played there a lot. When Dolly Varden was first trying to figure out what what the hell we were doing, yeah, we were there like every couple. of So months. it was a welcoming place. I mean, if you were, yeah, just establishing yourself or doing a new thing or I'd trying something so. out, yeah, he would let you come do it. Well, that was another thing that I, like I remember never remember making any money there. I mean, you could yeah, play that there. wasn't really. I mean, that wasn't part. We of were the trying deal. to figure out what we were doing. Fair enough, I guess. So making money was secondary. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of got to be. 
your band had a sound. I remember the sound of the band yeah. being a principal thing, you know, uh, Brian uh, right. at the forefront of the sound and Definitely. a momentum and a yeah. and it was a little bit headbanging. Yeah. I think or that's yeah. how I felt about it. Yeah, maybe so. With the two-part harmony sort of over the top. It's too, too good to So when did you move to Chicago? 83. So I came here, yeah, a year and a couple months after. But I started working at a uh, place. Uh, Bob Gibson had this place called Hobson's Choice, and he started it up as like a folk club where you would go and play continuously for a month. If you got a gig there, you were, your gig was a month long. And... Um, and he wanted he was emulating some like old template of hmm. folk music clubs where people would come and play residencies every night for a month well five nights i think it was wow. a week and so yeah so i was like this is freaking great you know i'm like have something to do every night right. making money not a lot of money but uh mostly opening for people like i opened for josh white and for oh, uh, wow. Lindsay, uh what's his name the auto heart player hazley i think hmm. and uh and did some other stuff where i was uh maybe the the main act but uh, so Michael Miles, the banjoist, was uh, right. the second banana here under Jim Hirsch at the time, saw me and, uh, and okay. offered me a job. Oh, cool. Yeah. So when did you start teaching here? Uh, 84, winter of 84. When I came here, it was to teach bluegrass and um, guitar and then ensemble. And the other teachers were um, uh, like Roger Bannister and uh, from the Buckstoven Range Company and his and uh, his mandolin player Charlie Charlie Brown. I don't know if you know those guys, Mm-mm. but they were teaching bluegrass here. And I stayed here till I think till about the summer of '96. And I always remember that date because I think uh, because uh, June of '96, my first solo record came out, mm. and that was like kind of my I shouldn't say my ticket out of here because that. Uh, implies that there was like a trail of gold leading away from here when is it like probably more the opposite but uh but anyway i was i was uh-huh. tired of it at that point of lessons and stuff and wanted to do something different but 12 plus years of lessons and yourself you're you're probably in your 10th year by now mm-hmm. or yeah 10 joel patterson told me i should teach here because he was teaching here and it wasn't really working for him uh-huh but he was like steve you'd be great at this i mean how do they hire people here is it all kind of um well, Joel introduced me to Jimmy like Jimmy Tomasello, who was in head of the guitar guitar department at the time. But you had had you taught anybody before that? Just like private lessons out of my house, like a little bit, not a lot. Yeah, you know, I, my interview was sitting with Jimmy and just talking for a little bit, and he's like, "All right, let me give you a guitar one class, and we'll see how it goes." That makes sense. He told me to watch Elaine teach guitar one. And that was kind of all I needed. Because in Guitar One, I imagine uh, mostly you need to be able to communicate with people. I mean, right. you don't need any skills, obviously, on the guitar. But you need to be uh, warm and likable and to be able right. to get along with people. Enthusiastic. Yeah. So Elaine Moore was the ideal person to watch. Because right. she made everyone feel like, you know, they just won the lottery for playing a D chord. And then, um, and both you and I came here because, I mean, you're a good performer, I'm a good performer, so I think that has something to do with it, too. Like, they're, yeah. they're out there, they see somebody that's, like, right. doing good on the scene or something, it's like, you, you can come yeah. in here and try it out.
Did you play when they were still regularly doing concerts down at 909 West Armitage? Did you play shows there? Yeah, I sure did. Yeah, you must have as well. Yeah, I never played there. I saw shows there, but I never played a show there. I have a certain amount of nostalgia for that room, and I don't know if it's um, scientifically a sound nostalgia or not. In other words, I remember it sounding good in that nice wooden. It's a really good vibe room. In there. I saw Ani DeFranco there. I just oh, remembered. Wow. I think I saw Greg Brown there, and he's always good. What's the wackiest thing that ever happened with the Secret Country series? Something wacky must have happened. There's a couple. Like I'd always try to uh, uh, indulge the performers and and make them feel like I was going the extra mile for them. And so I'd get marijuana. There were a couple of marijuana fans that came to play, <laughs> and like I I don't smoke marijuana. I have no idea where to buy marijuana, and ended up you know asking a friend that smokes a lot of marijuana. He hooked me up with this guy, and we met at a gas station. There was this little exchange, and I gave him 70 bucks, and like, and then I ended up giving it to, uh, to Wayne Hancock. And then uh, and he was so grateful, you know, <laughs> so grateful, you know, because wow. he really likes to be high when he plays. And then the same sort of thing for Guy Clark. I gave him a little marijuana. He mainly wanted to smoke cigarettes uh. and... And somehow an exception was made where you could just sit in your green room down across the street, sit inside the building and smoke, you know? And I can't remember if I got him that allowance or if he insisted on it. But, I mean, he he had cancer, you know? He was ill. He was down there smoking, and he also wanted dope. And I didn't have any in advance and didn't know about it. So I went out, and I got some through this gas station guy and brought it back. And he couldn't believe it. Like, an hour later, I'm back with this marijuana, and he uh, he goes, why... Are you being so nice to me, he says. Yeah, I always remember that. The sun was slowly sinking over the hilltops far away. The land was endless beauty where the dying soldier lay. Tears were streaming down his face as he slowly raised his head. These were the dying words he said Carry me back to old Tennessee Let this be my last repose Lay my feet beneath me while I lie Lay my head beneath the road Well, I, I mean, the, I learned how to play guitar from this woman named Linda Terry in Idaho when I was in seventh grade. It was offered as an elective, and I took guitar because uh, we had moved up there late, and I registered for school late. So it was the only thing that would actually fit in this slot in my schedule. They're like, well, we could, you could take guitar. And I was like, I don't play guitar. It's like, so you don't have to. So I, And this woman um, named Linda Terry, Miss Terry, was incredible and just like had the like was just like this glowing cowboy hippie lady that loved music so much and and just like this infectious love of music and she would like we'd learn John Denver songs and she'd just like she's like when he's singing about the sunshine on his shoulders I want you to really feel that sunshine you know and just like it wasn't about the the mechanical aspect of it although she got us doing that like alternating bass notes and she got us all really good but it was more about like music as this magical force and I think that um I mean I always loved music since I was a little kid but it it just 
it was the thing that made me want to do this. Your songwriting classes are so popular. I've never seen, well, like when I go to your shows, half the audience sometimes is, <laughs> um, yeah. is your students, you know. So you must, you must be the Miss Terry of the present day is what well, I'm thinking, I mean, I would, you know, as far as... I wouldn't be so bold to say so, but I would try to emulate some of that. That's for your sure, aspiration. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Are your students able to relax into that kind of non-hierarchical idea of music, uh, you know, and say not be embarrassed that I wrote this or that I'm playing this way or that I... think I, so, yeah. Do they come in that way or is that a part of your job to kind of relax them into that mode of thinking? I think that's part of... That's probably most of what I do. Interesting. Is let them be at ease about just like singing something crappy or singing something great, you know, or being un totally unsure about something they've come up with and just being like, I don't know what this is, but here it is. How has uh, teaching here changed any of your thinking about music? And Ooh. then as it feeds back into your writing and your band work, has it at all? Mm-hmm. Well, I've learned so many songs that I never would have learned because people want to learn them. So I have to learn them in order to teach them. So learning new chord, chord uh, some other guy's idea of a cool chord change right. or something. Getting inside of songs that I always kind of knew. Uh -huh. Like all these Beatles songs I always knew, but I never knew how to play them. Uh -huh. So then I sort of dissect them and be like, wow, okay. I see what's going on. I'm starting to see patterns like, oh, Paul McCartney has these patterns. John Lennon has these patterns. Oh, George Harrison has these patterns. But not just the Beatles, any, I mean, anything, even like songs by Journey or anything like... Stuff that you never yeah. would bother with. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of cool. I think the, the community here has given me a sense of music as less of a selfish act and more of a community spirit act, <laughs> if that makes sense. I mean, I, my, it was prior to teaching here or being part of this community it was kind of like music was something that I did and that other people I knew did but it wasn't so much a shared experience it was like I had my band I sang with Diane we did our thing I was aware of other people doing their things but we were sort of like on this path hopefully but as I've come here it's more like music is something everybody should be doing and I think it's really changed how I perceive just the act of making music. And the songwriting classes are part of that, that creating music can be part of anybody's life if they open themselves up to it. This has been The Archives. Tune in again next Thursday for the fifth installment of our documentary series on the Old Town School of Folk Music, in which we'll look at two fundamental changes the school made to adapt and survive throughout the 1980s and 90s. If you enjoy this podcast, we ask one thing of you this week. Leave us a review on iTunes. You can tell us what you like, tell us what you want to hear more of, or just tell us what you had for breakfast today. It doesn't take long, but it's a big help. Thanks to Robbie Folks and Steve Dawson for taking time to share their stories with us. The excerpts you heard were from a conversation recorded on June 5th, 2017, as part of our oral history project with StoryCorps. To listen to the full interview, hear excerpts from others we collected, or learn more about this ongoing partnership, go to oldtownschool.org StoryCorps. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-O-R-P-S. 
Check out the episode notes for detailed information on all the recordings featured in this podcast. I'm your host, Marie Valindo. Thank you for listening. Long as there's just the two of us, we hold each other's arm. Baby, now win just a little, lose just a little. Sometime had a blues a little, but baby, that's the glory of love.